This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And we are coming to you live from the Quicken Loans Studios. National Mortgage London Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. It's the Ken Carmen Show on CBS Sports Radio. 855-212-4CBS. I, I got to admit something here. We were supposed to have Ross Tucker at some point. Now, it's not Ross Tucker's fault because we got a chance to talk to Ross Tucker. But what we t- what we said to Ross Tucker, basically, how do I put this here, Hickey? Everything he said was like echoey because the system was all broken down and messed up. We've had a lot of problems technically here today at CBS Sports Radio. And so we were supposed to have Ross Tucker on, and basically it's an unusable interview. And so... We weren't going to have Ross Tucker on. I went, oh, well, okay. And I just went, hey, coming up next, uh, Peter Schwartz joins us. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. On a scale of 1 to 10, how embarrassing. <laughs> Peter, how embarrassing is that tease? Uh, to me? I, I mean, I have been doing radio with you for three years. Yes. We're on the National Network. Yes. And could you imagine some idiot you're driving around in Sheboygan, Wisconsin? Hey, coming up next, a little bit of this and uh, a little, little bit, of, bit that. of that on CBS Sports Radio. Oh, you got my attention. Well, it's it's not like you're it's not like you're bringing in the janitor. You're bringing in a voice oh on the network. God. Well, that's true. I know. I because it's like I no sold you because at first <laughs> I went, oh, we got a lot to talk about. We got his son's bar mitzvah. Yeah, that we're gonna mention. I feel bad for Ross. He's a, he's he's good at what he does. Whoa. Ross is good. What? Yeah. I like good the music. music. You should like the music. Yes. I picked it out just for you, baby. Thank you. So wait a minute. Now we have Bradley. Brad- is Bradley the one who became Bradley. a man? Yes, Bradley. Two weeks ago last night. Two weeks ago last night. Are you kidding me? Two weeks ago, yeah. So, so, okay, I've been, you know, I, I, have, Jewish, I have Jewish family members. Uh-huh. Uh, I've been to everything but a bar mitzvah. Uh-huh. Been to the wedding, been to the whole deal. So he goes up there and what? He reads Torah. So yeah. So the first hour is the ceremony, and he and he does his, um, you know, it's called a half Torah. It's a portion of the Torah he has to read, ah. and and the, the services are led by the cantor, and she did a wonderful job teaching him everything he needed to do. Very nice. And he did a superb job. It, you know, it's not a very easy thing to do to read that that scripture out of you know directly without certain vowels and everything that he learned how to read it with. So he did a did a really good job. He did. Now, you obviously, you remember your bar mitzvah? I, I, have, a, I have a vague recollection of it. Vague? It was not, no, I, I remember it, but to, to, be, to be completely honest, you know, the bar mitzvahs today are so different than they were back then. When I was bar mitzvahed, which was in 1980, uh, I mean, you just, you know, you, you, you dumped a whole bunch of family into the temple. Then you went to the party where it was. There uh, was no theme. Like, yeah, well, everybody's got a theme. Yeah. What, Bradley what was, has, it was, was pla- Planet Bradley. So if you drop Judas Bradley, Priest. if you drop Bradley on his own planet, what uh-huh. would he have with him? So each table at the reception had a portion of Planet Bradley, whether it was the Mets table or it was the oh Islanders table God. or the 
Jets, Madden, Xbox, iPhone, headphones. Uh, Under Armour was one of the tables, too. He likes Under Armour. Oh, big Under Armour. He'll, oh, he'll, so he's... If he ever becomes a professional athlete, that'll be his first endorsement. So I take it he's not very Team Kaepernick, I take it. Okay. Um, All no, right. No, you okay. didn't have to go there, but okay. All right. <laughs> I saw the I saw the photo with you and your family. You guys look beautiful. Oh, thank you very much. I, I mean, you guys look a lot of preparation. Thank My you. God, it, it, honestly, how many? Uh, like, how long do you have to plan for these? How many years out? Uh, we we've been at it uh, really probably for a year and a half, two years. Holy I think God. we booked. I think we booked where it was about a year and a half ago or so. I think when we had really? an initial conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. And Bradley's been getting lessons for three years. So it's it's how old is Bradley now again? He'll, well, he'll actually be thirteen next Sunday. He'll but he, be thirteen. So that's technically in the Jewish calendar. His bar mitzvah two weeks ago was his birthday. So wait a minute, how old's Jared? Jared is eight. So he starts what next year? He's going to start next year, and we're going to start the whole process oh, all over again. Oh man, we're going to start a GoFundMe page for the next one after what oh, we spent geez. on this one. Oh, I don't even want to know. I don't so, even want to know. So if management is listening, I'll take as many shifts as possible. Come on, folks. Four and a half years. Come on. You're only bar mitzvahed <laughs> once. Come on, Mark. You know, baby. Come on. <laughs> Great Peter Schwartz. Fantastic. Thank so, you. Okay. Let me let me ask one more question. Sure. Did somebody get him boggle? No one got him boggle. Come no. on. How did no cash. one get him boggle? A lot of cash. Oh, I hope so. It was a tremendous fundraiser. Yes, it was. Not, not in mom and dad's pocket. That was, that was, that was a withdrawal in the biggest way possible. But my, now, do you? Now he's thirteen, or he's going to be thirteen. He's becoming a man real yes. quick. And I, you know, I know you got to go. But do you guys look over the funds, or does he look over the funds? Because he, this was the deal, This was the arrangement we made okay. with him. All the right. money is his, and he has the ability to purchase one large item. And one small item within a month after the bar mitzvah. Beautiful. Once once that is done, the remainder of the funds are going to be placed in a in a an account where he won't be able to touch it for a while. See, that's that's the smart thing. Because uh, because yeah. unless his right hand snapping the football gets him a scholarship, that money is going to need to be used for something else down the road. You, know, you never know. But we're going to see. You never know. Mitchell yeah. Schwartz, Jeff Schwartz. I mean, you got you got good football he's, players. He's got he's got some good football, you know, in his body. I mean, he played for know. Team USA over the summer, yeah. so we'll see what happens. Peter, beautiful as always. Beautiful bar mitzvah. Your family looks beautiful. All the Thank best, you. buddy. We Thank love you. Peter Schwartz, fantastic as always. I was I wasn't going to tell Peter. Hickey, are you ready for this? I'm ready. When I was a kid, my buddy down the street, Danny. Because the Catholics, you know, they have the first communion and everything and the whole deal. And he got, you know, you get the communion money. And he had had, it was over $1,000, like, cash in his hand. And in our neighborhood, I swear to God Almighty, he comes up to our houses and he goes, hey. And it was him and his brother, Matt. He goes, hey, we're going down to Dairy Mart. I go, okay. So we all go down to the Dairy Mart there. Uh, do you guys have Dairy Marts out in New York? No, we have Dairy okay. Queen. Uh, no, Dairy Queen's a restaurant. Dairy Mart is conven- What's a convenience store? Name the best convenience store you have out there. 7-Eleven. All right, so it's like a 7-Eleven, except it's Dairy Mart. 
He goes, we're going to, and they don't even, gosh, they're, they're losing dairy marts now. But we go, he goes, well, I'm going to a dairy mart. I says, okay. So we go down the street to the dairy mart. He takes the cash. He puts it on the counter. I swear to God. And he goes, give me all the pogs you got in the building. He bought like $1,000 worth of pogs, knickknacks, everything you could possibly get with $1,000 from Dairy Mart. Walks home. <laughs> we're playing with the pogs. We're checking out the pogs. Pogs were like, there were these stupid things. See, I have to explain everything because you're basically 10 years old. I'm not even old and I have to explain this stuff. Pogs were basically, it's like Magic the Gathering cards, except they were circular and pogs. That's what they were called. Okay, Hickey, you following? Yes, I was going to ask for an explanation. Exactly. So basically, he buys all these knickknacks, like these like toy cars, uh, bought basically an entire shelf of candy, and bought as many pogs as $1,000 could get him. His dad freaks out and had to go back to the Dairy Mart with all the stuff that he had left and tried to get back everything from the manager. And the manager's like, what happened here? And he had to march his son in there and goes, one of your idiot tellers let this little boy come in here with $1,000, put it on the counter. Danny, what did you say to him? I said, give me all the pogs you can give me. Told him, give me all the pogs you can give me. You sold him $1,000 worth of co- You didn't realize, didn't understand why a preteen kid had $1,000 in his hand. Guy is screaming at the person behind the counter. Goes and goes, let me go get the manager. Tells the manager, and the manager's like, just fine. Here's a lot of the money. But gave him like 900 bucks back. Had to go back and do that. Hickey, were you were you bar mitzvah? Or did you do communion? Uh communion. I was one of those Catholics that you talked about. What does that? Is that how I said it? Yeah, it was funny. I enjoyed it. Gosh, did I sound like that bad when I said it? Like oh, one of them Catholics over there. They're one of them Catholic boys. I didn't mean it like that. McKean, are you Catholic? Yeah, I'm also one of those Catholics. One of them, they're Catholics. Judas Priest. I'm sorry. What'd you get for communion money? I don't exactly remember the, the price. I was like 10. So how much did you get? Tell You ballpark it. What'd you get? I'd like to guess maybe like, maybe probably like a thousand. Thousand bucks? I don't what? know, Ken. I was like, I was like maybe eight. What'd you get, Ryan? I mean, same. I mean, I'm 10 years old. is pretty generous. How do you not remember grade? the first You're thousand you grade. make from communion? And that my doesn't parents matter. Sure I didn't see that money either. So for but that they reason, st- so I don't they take still it to go to the Seven Eleven. I don't care. I don't, well, that's obviously the truth. You don't give them any of the money. Second of all, though, what I'm saying is, for a second grade kid, a lot of money is like fifteen or twenty bucks in their hand. They go, my, my God, what am I going to do with all this money? And so they didn't tell you at all what money you had. They just was like, oh, we're taking this and this is it. They oh, didn't tell you at all. My parents would take it and then they'd give me like sixty bucks and be like, here, go buy a video game, and that would be all I needed. That was all I cared oh about. Oh my god, that's not. Come on, you need. What do you want a ten-year-old to buy? A car? You didn't know. I'm not saying that, but they at least had to tell you. Yeah, they told me we got money for you. This portion of it's going to the bank, and you're going to get this portion, and it's going to go to whatever fun you want see, for a video game. And sixty dollars back then is a million dollars to you. See, I'm just a regular Protestant dweeb. I didn't get any of that stuff. Oh, you're one of them Protestants. Yeah, one of them. They're Protestants. I didn't get any. I didn't get any sort of money until I, what, graduated high school. I graduated college. I got nothing. Like, we had a graduation party. It was worthless. And then when I got married, we got a lot of money for when we got married. We had it out in Youngstown. But I actually had blood relatives. I hate to admit this, but I love admitting it. I had blood relatives who didn't give me anything for my wedding. you believe that? 
How? How do you walk in empty Drove out to Youngstown. Drove out to Youngstown. Ate my food. The whole thing. Didn't know nope, nothing. Didn't give me nothing. No way you still speak to them. I still speak to them. How? That's an unforgivable know. sin. No, it's really not. I, I just don't understand why you drive an hour to Youngstown, an hour east of Youngstown, eat the food, do the whole party thing. The booze was free for them. I know I'm the one who paid for it. My pay, my in-laws paid for basically everything else. My parents gave me a couple grand. And then uh, that was it. I remember the chair covers were freaking $900. And I had a couple of aunts and uncles didn't give me anything. And it wasn't like they're poor either. I was very surprised. If I got invited to a wedding where like I they were like kind of friends but not really, uh-huh. I didn't really know them, I would still feel weird walking in without a gift. Yeah, so the you fact still that give, family members walked in. Yeah, you these. still give, you still get like money, and you know not everybody's bathing in it. Obviously, you know, twenty bucks, thirty, whatever. You still give something. I mean, good God, it's like forty a plate. I don't know. Not that I like to call him out. 855-212-4CBS. Coming up at 1140, Bob Glover going to join us, NFL columnist for Newsday, author of Guts and Genius. Coming up next, three up, three down. Bradley Schwartz, he's up. He's a man. And no one got him boggle. It's Ken Carmen on CBS Sports Radio. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is the Ken Carmen Show. Who's trending up? Who's sinking down? It's time to find out on Free Up, Three Down with Ken Carmen here on CBS Sports Radio. Hit it. Who's up? Baker freaking Mayfield. Hickey, nine touchdowns, one interception since Hugh Jackson got canned. On the field today, Hugh Jackson was on the sidelines. Baker Mayfield. Four touchdown passes. Browns won 35-20. They're now 4-6-1. Are they going to make the playoffs? No. Are they still a particularly good team? No. But they're starting to make some hay the best way they possibly can. And what Baker Mayfield said after the game, and some people drew a little bit of umbrage with it, took a little bit of umbrage with it, Hugh Jackson, just a couple of weeks after he got fired, ended up going to the Cincinnati Bengals and was a special assistant to Marvin Lewis and will be a special assistant to Marvin Lewis for the rest of the season. And according to Jason Locke and Fora, might end up being the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals next year. One for Cincinnati. I pray that he's the head coach next year. I absolutely pray. Second, regardless of whether you like it or not, or regardless of whether it's even fair or not, because you can look at this and say, hey, he ain't doing anything. He got fired. He still wants to work. He still wants to be a coach. You can't have a problem with that. That's a perfectly fair and reasonable take. But again, we have to try to live in Baker Mayfield's world. One, he's always going to have a chip on his shoulder. He's always going to take things immensely personal. The other thing, he needs to get guys to rally the troops. He needs to get guys to rally around him and do what he does. And being around the Cleveland Browns for a long time, I'll tell you this. Hugh Jackson has done nothing for the Cleveland Browns over the last three, three years other than provide them an excuse. And Baker Mayfield, while he might not be thinking about this consciously, needs to get those guys to rally around him and rally around each other and not and to stop worrying about old football coaches and stop worrying about giving them hugs on the sidelines and before and after a game and things like that. So Baker Mayfield's tact, while harsh, is the right way, the right thing to do for himself and a Cleveland Browns football team that has been garbage for the past 20 years. He has to do it this way. It's the way he knows to do it. And he has to make an enemy out of a former coach. 
Next. Who's down? Jim Harbaugh. I said it before. I'll say it again. You have made yourself the John Cooper of Michigan football. Great record. You've done a great job with Michigan, but you had it right there in the palm of your hands. You were supposed to kick the ass of Ohio State, reclaim Big Ten dominance, put yourself in the college football playoff. We think of Northwestern as an afterthought. Sorry, Pat Fitzgerald. Sorry, Wildcat fans, the one of you that are listening out there. We're apologizing, but it's the truth. That's the way you're thought of right now. It's up to you to change it. But for Michigan, you were supposed to do those things. Oh, and by the way, Urban Meyer, there was a question about whether or not he was going to come back next year. Then they don't just lose. They give up 62 points, and they lose by three touchdowns. 0-4. While you're 10-2, and and you've been much better over the last few years, and you finally got yourself a system that's workable, and you finally got your players. You got Chase Wimbush. You got guys who care about it on defense. You lose that game, and it all goes away. And all of those previous things that people like me were shutting up about while you were beating the brakes off of Penn State, while you were beating the brakes out of Wisconsin and Michigan State, it all comes back because you didn't win the game that mattered the most. And you're still the afterthought in the Big Ten. Not where you're supposed to be, which is what makes it a tremendous disappointment. This isn't quite the equivalent of 1969. It's damn close. You were supposed to have a coronation yesterday. It turned into a bloodbath. Next. Who's down? Who's up? Who's up? Yeah, you almost got that one mixed up, didn't you there, buddy boy? Who's up is Russell Wilson. Six and five now. And the only reason they're keeping their head above water with the Seattle Seahawks is Russell Wilson. Earlier this year, you had Earl Thomas. He was giving him the bird as he was getting taken off the field. You have a team that's in flux. You no longer have Michael Bennett. You no longer have guys who are veterans on that defense. You're working new players in. You're trying to build that system throughout. And a lot of quarterbacks are tasked with this. There's guys who can get over the hump. They're called elites. There's guys who can't. Joe Flacco, Matt Stafford, those guys. They can't get over the hump when you change that out. There's guys who are. They're elite. Russell Wilson is part of the elite group. He is one of those guys. Next. Who's down? The Jaguars. 3-8, and eight, you lose to the Bills, and you get in a great big fight and cost your team points during it. That's a lack of discipline. And for a while, I've been looking elsewhere as much as I could other than Doug Marone. You have lost the locker room, sir. Leaving Blake Bortles, I, I know that Blake Bortles isn't that good of a quarterback. I'm tired of Blake beating up on Blake Bortles. He is what he is. He's not that great. The Jaguars shot their shot, and they missed. He's not that great. He's a bust. Number three overall, that's a bust. But I can only sit there and beat up the quarterback for so long. They have absolutely no discipline. They were one of the biggest trash-talking teams before they were really good last year, and then after they were really good this year, and they've done nothing except fall apart to 3-8. and eight. You have Leonard Fournette that when he's either hurt, he's getting in a fight. You have no run game. The defense is falling apart. You're giving up 99 rushing yards to Josh freaking Allen, who's coming back from an injury. You have serious problems basically out of nowhere, and they're all caused by yourself. Next. Who's up? Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck, this is what proves about what a quarterback can do for you. Jim Irsay is a goofball. Jim Irsay has at times been a wildfire owner and not a good owner. Andrew Luck covers all that up. Andrew Luck at the beginning of the season looked like he was just happy to be alive and playing football. So he was smiling through the losses. Now he's got Colts fans believing 
They've won a ton of games in a row. They have an open door. This is a team that could very well make the playoffs. I don't know about the Ravens. I don't know how much further Lamar Jackson can go. He had a good game this week. I don't want to sit there and besmirch the guy. I don't know how long that lasts. But I know I got something better when I look at Andrew Luck and see that that guy can come back. He's changed the slot. He's got them believing. Eric Ebron is having a renaissance, for crying out loud. And the Colts are back. At 6-5, and five, if they don't make the playoffs this year, it'll end up maybe being a disappointment because they have gotten through the toughest part. And in that division, to be fighting tooth and nail with the Texans, again, it just makes it that much more glaring what the Jacksonville Jaguars haven't been able to do this year. The biggest disappointment in the league, without a doubt. Next. Who's down? Clay Helton. I know he got to keep his job. Every week, watch is going to be on Clay Helton next year. And so now you're supposed to try to recruit guys and bring guys into USC. You're supposed to be able to recruit with, and you're USC, so this is where fans put you. You're supposed to be able to recruit with with Ohio State and Oklahoma and Clemson and Alabama and Texas and, and those teams. Michigan, I'll throw them in there as well. You're supposed to be able to recruit with them. And now I'm Clay Helton, and now i got to hit the road and go out and recruit. A bunch of guys who don't know if I'm going to be there even by the end of week two next season. And now it's just a ticking time bomb, and it's, a, it's just a matter of when you're going to get let go. And then for USC fan, now you've just wasted a time. There are prime candidates out there. If you were going to squeeze the trigger, sorry, now's the time to squeeze the trigger. If you're going to keep Clay Helton, for better or for worse, you give him the entire season next year. You can't bend to boosters after this season or beginning of the season if things don't go your way at the beginning of it. You cannot allow your program to do that. You've made your stand. Now you stand there and keep on keeping on. That is three up, three down. A lot coming up a little bit later on. We'll get into the Jim Harbaugh stuff. We'll get into the college football playoffs sounding off. That's going to be a spirited one. And also, this right here. This is why four teams are better than eight in the college football playoff. But next, Bob Glauber going to join us. We'll talk about his new book, Guts and Genius. It's Ken Carmen on CBS Sports Radio. This is the Ken Carmen Show. Back on CBS Sports Radio, Ken Carmen until 2 a.m. Eastern, 855-2124-CBS, 855-2124-2273, up, three down, coming up next, but right now, a man who truly needs no introduction. You know I should say that about everybody, but I don't. That's what makes him special. His name is Bob Glauber. He's the NFL columnist for Newsday, author of Guts and Genius, at Bob Glauber on Twitter, and it's a new book. And it talks about three impeccable gentlemen, guys who are incredible NFL coaches in their own right. And Bob Glauber joins us on the show tonight. Bob, thanks for joining us. Ken, thanks for having me. I think I'm going to have to retire after that introduction. Um, I'm, I'm done. I'm all good. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, I've edited a lot of careers, so it's, it's, not a very, it's not a very good I was the last guy to host the Hugh Jackson show in Cleveland, so here we are. Uh, so anyway... Uh, <laughs> so the book is called Guts and Genius. It's so easy to write Guts and Glory, but it still says Guts and Genius. And it says the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. We're talking about Gibbs. We're talking about Bill Walsh and obviously Bill Parcells, who, I don't, you know, Bob, and you, you probably know better than this, or you probably know better than I do is what I mean. They seem to come, like Bill Walsh comes from a different background. He's more of a... He seemed to be more intricate in the details and much more of a philosopher. Parcells was really rough and tumble. Gibbs seemed to take a mix of the two there, at least from my point of view. But when you wrote about these three guys, when you go back to what it was in the 80s, one of them has obviously passed on. How did you mix it all together and and find out the true essence of each one of these coaches? Well, that's a good question. And and 
the, the reason I, I link them together um, and looking back at NFL history and that dec- decade in particular, I, I think in a lot of ways that was the golden age of, of football. Mm-hmm. It's still a great game. There's no question. It's a great sport. It's still very popular, and, and games are great. But back then, you know, you had a, it's, it was a different landscape. It was a lot of rivalries. When you were a good team, you stayed good, and you could keep a team together. And 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 to get good was was harder in in a sense because it took more time to build those teams. So, you know, those guys uh, were unlikely at the time. You know, 1979. You tell me that Bill Walsh, Joe Gibbs, and Bill Parcells are going to be the coaches of the decade and win a combined eight Super Bowls over an eleven year period. No, people would have said, "What are you talking about? Who are these guys?" Because really, they're, they're household names now, but in in the Hall of Fame. But back then, they they were just lightly known and lightly regarded coaches, and and they all kind of went through things differently. But what linked them together was not only the competition they had with each other; they played each other a number of times, and a lot of times, whoever won that game would go on to win the Super Bowl that year. But what linked them together was. You know, uh, uh, obviously a belief in their core values and their core systems, but they overcame really difficult beginnings, and they all thought they were going to be fired early on, literally. They, I mean, mm-hmm. Bill Walsh thought, I'm done. A year and a half in, I think I'm going to get fired, or I don't think I can take this. He actually broke down after a game against Don Shula in Miami where he lost, and he felt he was at fault. He broke down on the team plane and was weeping uncontrollably, and Coaches and the general manager, John McVay, they had to kind of huddle around Walsh to prevent the players from thinking anything was wrong. He finally gathered himself and, and, you know, a year and a half later won his first of three Super Bowl championships. Joe Gibbs thought he'd be the first coach in NFL history fired before ever winning a game, and and Parcells was going to be fired his first season. And it's it's kind of a remarkable uh, symmetry with with those coaches. Um, and they did it differently. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, Walsh was the thinking man's coach, and Gibbs was a, a bit of a mix of the two. Very physical coach, loved the physical running game, and Parcells was was a, a brute. And he, you got to play great defense and run the ball and be tough and be tough-minded. And that's how he won Super Bowls. And those guys really took turns winning each year, just about each year of that decade into the early 90s. And um, it was it was a pretty fascinating time in the NFL. Bob Glauber joining us on the show. You know, I, I I always try to find the excerpts of Finding the Winning Edge from Bill from Bill Walsh, his book, which is basically a Bible to coaches. Uh, how much of it did you have to really did, not that book in particular, but for Bill Walsh, how much deep diving did you have to do? Maybe even in that text or something to find the type of guy that he really was. And obviously from a personal relationship, you've covered the NFL for a very long time, Bob. So so what what can you tell me about him personally that we'll find in the book? Well, what's different about this book personally, and, and it is the personal stuff. Um, I, first, you mentioned that book, Finding the Winning Edge, a terrific book, a deep dive into the, the mind of, of Bill Walsh. And um, uh, Brian Billick, co-wrote that book with him, and, and I spoke at length to Brian Billick about just the process of that and um, how that went. But, you know, there were there were events that shaped Bill Walsh's life uh, that I do talk about in the book. Um, there, was, there was an instance when he was about 11 or 12 years old, he had a, he had a, a pet duck um, in Los Angeles where he was growing up. His father was a, a very, you know, tough guy and um, blue-collar guy, worked on cars, and 
one day uh, Bill Walsh came home to find his duck was gone, and uh, his father had uh, he, he Bill Walsh was just walk around the house. Hey, where, where's my, where's my duck? And the the father had it killed, and they ate it for dinner. Jesus. And it was yeah, that's exactly how I reacted to that story. And I'm like, and his Craig, his son Craig, Bill Walsh's son Craig, is telling me this, and I'm like, oh my god. And and one of the things Craig said was that moment really kind of it just was like cement in his stomach. He just he, he, even at a young age he, he realized I'm going to have to do this on my own. I'm going to have to kind of go my own way and do everything uh, and 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 live my life on my own. And it's you know kind of a heavy thing for an 11 or 12 year old kid to be thinking that, but. You know, you fast forward, and and he was he was a lonely child. Um, he, they moved around a lot in California and Oregon. Bill Walsh never really settled down anywhere. In high school, he was he was a loner. Did like to play sports. He liked to play football, and he liked to box eventually in college. But you know, those events really kind of shaped him early on, and it also led to a lot of a lot of self doubt along the way. You know, Bill Walsh was a, a brilliant man, but he was also an insecure man. And a lot of that insecurity kind of showed itself and flared during his career. There was a time early on where he'd confide in Dick Vermeil, the Eagles coach, um, back in 79 and 80. Yeah. And Vermeil was going through his own thing, obviously, as we know, that you know he was burning out. Um, but, but Bill Walsh would have to call him up in the office, sometimes call him at midnight. And Dick Vermeil is still in the office with his coaches, and he'd have to take a break uh, to talk to Bill Walsh and basically talk him down from the ledge about how badly things were going. Remember, Walsh was 2-14 and 14 his first year. So, um, you know, I talked to his wife, um, who Jerry, I don't believe, has really talked much um, at all uh, about her husband and kind of growing up and going through the experiences in Cincinnati uh, when Walsh had his formative years as a coach um, and was very disappointed when he was passed over. Uh, by Paul Brown. It really kind of led to the, the flourishing of the Bill Walsh coaching tree in a sense. So there were a lot of moments in Bill Walsh's life, the flashpoints that kind of um, uh, surfaced along the way uh, as, you know, mileposts in his, in his life and in his career. Got to the top and it was tough for him to stay up there and it really wore at him and it burned him out and it, and it almost destroyed him by the 1988 season. That's, you know, we're in the 30-year anniversary of that final season of Bill Walsh, and he was he was a burned-out coach at that time and, mm-hmm. and couldn't go much further and uh, won a Super Bowl and then walked out and regretted it pretty pretty soon and realized that he that maybe he left too soon but, but never did coach another game in the NFL. Bob Glover joining us, Newsday, author of Guts and Genius, at Bob Glover on Twitter. It, it might be tough to pick, but which one of the three stories between him, Gibbs, and Bill Parcells was the uh, the one you liked the most? Well, I found Walsh the most interesting only because I probably knew less about him uh, than the other two. You know, having covered the Giants for a long time and covered those Gibbs-Parcells battles over the years, I, I probably knew more institutionally about uh, both Joe Gibbs and Bill Parcells. So it was a learning experience to to learn about uh, Bill Walsh, and particularly because he was so unique and um, so ahead of his time. I I found it to be the most interesting and kind of the deep dive in there. And he was was a conflicted man in a lot of ways, and and it kind of carried through in his career. But then, it, but then again, you know, I, I was not able to interview him for the book. I interviewed him before, you know, when he was alive. 
But so it was interesting to talk to people about Bill Walsh. And I think a lot of times when you write about something and you don't get to talk to the person or subject you're writing about, it, it still can be very interesting talking to people about it. I mean, Craig Walsh provided so much insight about Bill Walsh from the time that Bill was, was an assistant under Paul Brown. Craig was a, was a ball boy. And he saw some stuff that um, that was uh, that was bad. You know, Paul Brown um, was was a bully uh, in a lot of ways to Bill Walsh, and and it it, it impacted him greatly. Um, and you know, you're you're the son, you're the ball boy, looking at this stuff. You know, looking at Paul Brown yell at your father uh, as an assistant coach, and it's um, you know it was some unique experiences. So I'd say Walsh learning about him was the most interesting. But talking to Parcells and and Gibbs priceless. And then getting an, an audience with John Madden to talk about all three of those guys was one of the biggest treats of my career. It was great. It's like having a like having a private viewing of a John Madden soliloquy <laughs> right on the uh, right right before you and it was fantastic. How long did you get to spend with him to talk about those three guys? Oh, I spoke to him on the phone. He's out in California, so I wasn't able to meet with him, but we mm-hmm. spoke for about an hour on the phone and I you know, I get I very seldom get nervous interviewing people. But I was I was nervous for that one. It took me a, literally took me a while to settle down. But then you know the guy is hilarious. He's talking about the time that he fired Joe Gibbs. They were on a staff at San Diego State together under Don Coriel. He, he was a defensive coordinator, and, and Gibbs was a defensive assistant under him. And he wanted to fire him because during a an alumni game, um, Gibbs coached the alumni, and and uh, Madden coached the uh, the San Jose team, and. Madden wanted Gibbs to tell him the plays he was going to run, and Gibbs said, "No, I'm not going to tell you." Madden says, "No, no, no, just, just, just give me an idea. You don't have to tell me the specific plays." He said, "No, I, I, I'm not going to do it." And they coached. They, you know, Madden won the game, um, and afterward he went to Coriel. He says, I, "I, I can't work with this guy anymore." So in the end, John, John said to me, he says, "So I, I take credit for putting Joe." Joe Gibbs on offense because the next year he was coaching the offensive line at San Diego State. Hilarious <laughs> stories like that. You go back in time. And Madden is one of the great storytellers of of our time or any time, and it was it was really a treat to kind of hear how he you know kind of came across those guys and um, and learned about what made them tick. And he had a really he had a front row seat into the minds of those coaches and he knew him very, very well. And he was able to see what made him great. And, and that was the ultimate time for John Madden. I think he was really at his, at his peak then. And, and thereafter in the nineties, he never really lost it to me. Yeah. Um, but that was, that was the glory years of football and John Madden. And he was, he was right there to chronicle some great, great games. Bob Glauber joining us, columnist, Newsday, author of Guts and Genius. You can find this book just about everywhere, especially on Amazon. Easy to buy, nice price, good read, good stuff. Uh, it only came out of five, about five days ago, so if you've got a football fan in your family, an easy buy, and again, a great read for everybody. Bob, out of the three guys, this one's going to be a tough one. Which one do you think would have the most success in, in say they were 40 years old each, the most mm-hmm. success in 2018 NFL football? Great question. And I, and I and I and I do have an answer. I I think it would be I think it would be Walsh first, Gibbs second, Parcells third. I think Parcells needed too much physicality to kind of um, go where he he needed to go. Although he he did kind of trend toward the the, the passing game a lot toward toward the end of his career. 
But he needed to bake in physicality on his team. So I, I think he would and, – and you can't do that in today's game. Yeah. Gives his mind maybe the best strategist ever, but, but he too needed physical football, and, and you don't see that quite as much. And, and the reason I put Walsh first is because in many ways Walsh was – the precursor to what we're seeing today in terms of practice. Remember, he was criticized by a lot of people for having light practices. He'd have a lot of walkthroughs and run-throughs with no hitting, and it was not normal at the time. People oh, would yeah. say, "You're, you know, you're, you got a finesse team, and you're, you're not going to be physical enough." But he was right. He preserved the players' bodies like they do today. So I think he'd, I think he'd be the most ready to succeed at this level, given the constraints that you have on practice and the physical element of the practices. Covering the NFL the way you do, can you name three coaches that closely resemble each of these three coaches in today's NFL? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, I would say Sean Payton for Joe Gibbs. Brilliant guy, um, really creative. I would say Sean McVay. For Bill Walsh, because his, he, he, I see I see that West Coast offense that he runs, and I think Bill Walsh. I think Bill Walsh would say, "Son, you are you are a good coach, my friend." And then for Parcells, Parcells, I'd probably say, maybe can I go a combination of Belichick and Mike Zimmer, two two of his guys, because oh, yeah. they. They they really kind of have the physicality. You know, Belichick's a brilliant genius coach. There's no doubt, and he's the, the most accomplished coach of all time. There's, there's you know there's no there's no denying that. But I think him and Zimmer kind of reflect that physical nature of football as much as you can in today's game, uh, and kind of willing teams to win. Bob, it's exceptional, and I thank you very much for the time. Again, the book. Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate in the 1980s. Find it on Amazon. Find it at bookstores. Came out just a couple of days ago. Makes a great Christmas gift. You can get it on Kindle. You can get an audiobook, the whole thing. So there's no excuse. You're a football fan. Go get the book. Bob, I thank you very much for the time again. An honor, a pleasure, my friend. Hopefully we get a chance to do it again soon. Sounds great, Ken. I appreciate the questions. They were, they were very thought-provoking. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.